0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, good morning. I am glad to get to be with you today. If you have your Bible, grab it and open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at that in just a minute. Here's how I want to start this morning audience participation. I want you to turn to your neighbor, and over the next 30 seconds, I want you to answer this question What is your favorite food? 30 seconds, turn to your neighbor, go. Okay, quick survey, quick survey, anybody here for steak? Who said steak was their favorite food? All right, got a few takers, very good. Anybody for pizza, anybody? Pizza favorite food, very good. A lot of hands there, all right. Um, Anybody for pasta, you're in lasagna, spaghetti, all right, got some Italian lovers here, very good. How about Mexican food, tacos, quesadilla, got some there. Anybody for ice cream, do I have ice cream takers? A lot of hands on that one. I'll tell you my favorite food, it is donuts. Personally, I believe the donuts are evidence that God is real and that he is good, all right? And I want to tell you a story this morning, actually about my son Luke's favorite food, when he was just a little guy. He was not quite one years old. He was not walking yet. He was doing that little army crawl thing, you know, the babies do around the house. And when Luke was a little guy, man, he could eat. He could just pack away the food. I mean, just baby food jar after baby food jar. I don't know if you've ever tasted baby food, but it is nasty, all right? Uh, The reason the babies cry is because they have to eat baby food. It's just gross. But Luke was just like, oh, you know, me me up, boom, you know, set me up again. And and like a weightlifter with protein shakes, he could just down jar after jar of baby food. But there's one thing that Luke liked better than baby food paper. (laughs) I have no idea why he liked eating paper, but he did. He just had this thing. You could put a piece of paper on the floor. You could put a jar of baby food on the floor. Luke would army crawl straight for that paper. (laughs) Oh, paper. And he'd just start eating that paper. You could put a piece of junk mail on the floor. You could put a piece of chocolate cake on the floor. He would go straight for the junk mail. Oh, junk mail. And we had this, uh, in our living room, we had this basket of magazines, right? And uh, and so Luke would crawl over to that basket of magazines, belly up to that thing like a pig at a trough, all right? And just stick his head in there, oh, magazines, blah, 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 blah. And there's nothing that he liked better than to digest a good book. Ha <laughs> That's a terrible joke. Don't laugh at that. But I, you know how some people have their life verse, you know what I'm talking about, right? I always thought that if, if little baby Luke had a life verse, that his life verse would be Ezekiel 3.3. 3. Do you know this verse? God speaking to Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And uh, he says this, then he said to me, son of man, Eat this scroll I am giving you, <laughs> and fill your stomach with it. And Ezekiel says, So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey to my mouth. A <laughs> little, little life verse for little baby Luke. Now, now that verse actually reminds me of another verse in the Bible, Psalm 119, 103, where the psalmist says this. He says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that always reminds me of another verse over in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, where Jeremiah says this. He says, I found your words and I ate them, and they were a joy and a delight to my heart. And that reminds me of another verse over in Job chapter 23, verse 12, where Job says this. He says, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my daily bread. And that reminds me of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where God's word is compared to bread. And that reminds me of 1 Peter 2, where God's word is compared to to milk, and that reminds me of Hebrews chapter 5, where God's Word is compared to meat. And all through God's Word, our Bible intake is pictured as eating, and the contents of this book are pictured as spiritual nourishment for our soul. If I could just summarize my message for you this morning, if I could just put my sermon in a sentence today, it would be this, God wants His Word to be your favorite food. You got your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 3? I want to look at this text with you. Paul, writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 15, says this. He says, From infancy you have known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now here at Plainfield Christian Church, your leaders want you to study God's Word. They want you to believe God's Word. But can I let you in on a little secret? They don't want you to just study this Word. They don't want you to just believe this Word. They actually want you to love, love God's Word. Word. Now, can I show you what that looks like? Can I just, I'll give you three quick pictures of what a love of God's Word would look like. Here's picture number one. Francis Schaeffer, a well-known Christian author, brilliant apologist. Francis Schaeffer one time said this. He said that he would keep his Bible on the nightstand by his bed, and, uh, and this, this is what he wrote. He said, I know this might sound melodramatic, maybe a little corny, but sometimes in the morning, When I wake up, I am so overwhelmed with gratitude for this book. He said that I reach over for my Bible and I just pat it. I am so thankful for it. I just pat my Bible. That's a picture of a love of God's Word. Here's picture number two. I have a friend named Bob Martin, longtime preacher in south-central Missouri. And every, Bob has so much Scripture memorized that everyone in that region has given him a nickname. He is known to many as Bible Bob. That's how much Scripture he has memorized. In fact, he loved God, loves God's Word so much that one year, uh, during his devotional time each morning, Bob wrote out the entire Bible longhand. He hand-copied the entire book so that he could just feel the words coming through his fingers. In fact, as he wrote it out, he, he would say the words out loud, rolling the sentences around in his mouth like candy. That's a love of God's Word. Here's picture number three, penny. Penny is a girl that Donald Miller met when he was a campus minister out in the Pacific Northwest. Now, when Penny first went off to college, she was not a Christian, didn't want to be a Christian, but she ended up with a Christian roommate there at this particular college. Her roommate's name was Nadine, and Nadine was not at all how Penny expected. She thought of all Christians as as judgmental, but Nadine was, was interesting, and she was intelligent, and she was gracious, and when Donald Miller met Penny... Penny had become a Christian because of Nadine's gracious witness. And Penny was telling Donald Miller about, about how this happened. I just, I just want to read to you um, uh, what Donald Miller wrote. Let me, let me read you his words. He says, Penny told me the story of how she became a Christian. She, she said, Nadine and I would sit for hours in our room. And mostly we would talk about boys or school. But always by the end of it, we would talk about God. One day she asked me if I wanted to read through the book of Matthew with her. And in fact, I did. I wanted to see if this whole Jesus thing was real. And Donald Miller asked Penny, he said, so so that's when you started reading the Bible? Oh, yes, she said. We would eat chocolates and smoke cigarettes and read the Bible. (laughs) Which is the only way to do it, if you ask me, Don. She said, the Bible is so good with chocolate. I always thought the Bible was more of a salad thing, you know, but it isn't. It's a chocolate thing. Now, Plainfield Christian Church, hear me. Do not smoke cigarettes when you read the Bible. (laughs) That's not good for you. But did you hear what Penny said? She thought that reading the Bible would be a have-to kind of thing, like eating salad. But she discovered that reading the Bible is actually a want-to, a get-to kind of thing. It's like eating chocolate. That's a picture of a love of God's Word. And here at Plainfield Christian Church, your leaders don't just want you to read this book and study this book. They want you, we want you to love this book. We want you to hunger for God's Word like it is your favorite food. So could I do this? Maybe maybe some of you here this morning are, are kind of new to the Bible and you're wondering, why, why, why would I love God's Word? Or maybe some of you have grown up around the Bible your whole life, and you're just kind of used to it, and maybe you need to rekindle that love. So for the rest of the minutes that we have, could I do this? Can I help you find that hunger or find that hunger again? I think the secret to loving God's Word is actually somewhere there in our text, Second Timothy 3, if you still got your Bibles open. I just want to look for it with you. So let's jump in. Here we go. As I'm reading through this little text in 2 Timothy 3, I notice that phrase, all Scripture is useful for teaching. Now, don't rush past that. There's a simple but powerful truth there. God's Word is a thing that can be taught. God's Word is a thing that can be understood. So could the secret to loving God's Word be something as simple as this? We love the Bible for its clarity, for its clarity. Maybe that's why we hunger for it. I love the fact that the Bible is understandable. The Bible's clarity is a very good thing. Now, now theologians call this doctrine of the Bible's clarity. They call this the perspicuity of Scripture, which is super dumb because perspicuity is like literally the most unclear word you could use for the clarity of Scripture. Theologians are idiots. Can I just say that? All right. But theologians are also brilliant because they are absolutely right to say the perspicuity of Scripture is an essential doctrine. It is. Now, when we talk about the clarity of the Bible, we don't mean that every single thing in the Bible is easy to understand. It's not. There's hard stuff in there. So this doctrine doesn't mean that we can understand the Bible perfectly, but it does mean that we can understand the Bible sufficiently. All the main things that we need to know and believe and do can be clearly understood, can be clearly seen. And the doctrine of the Bible's clarity is important because it actually also tells us something important about God. You see, it tells us that God wants to be known. The Bible tells us this from literally the very first page. You remember, God talks in the beginning with the heavens and the earth, and God said, whoa, our God speaks. He's not silent. You understand that God could have remained unknowable, inscrutable, unreachable. This this celestial hermit, a divine introvert locked away in a corner of the universe somewhere far beyond all human understanding. But the Bible is actually God's gracious choice to give up his privacy. To just crack the door open on his life and invite us into relationship. He spoke to us in human language, in in complete sentences with subject and verb agreement, with grammar that can be diagrammed and analyzed and actually understood. And the clarity of Scripture is telling us that God wants to be known. In fact, in fact, it tells us that God wants to be known by regular people. You see, God did not communicate to us in some kind of secret esoteric language that could only be deciphered by super smarty pants people, right? I work at a Bible college. And at Ozark, sometimes, sometimes, we have students who like to think they are the only ones who can really understand the Bible. It's usually sophomores. (laughs) We have had Bible college classes. We have studied the original languages. I know Hebrew. I know Greek. And I have to say, big (laughs) whoop-dee-doo. Every five-year-old in Athens knows Greek. That's not a big deal, all right? what What you need to understand is when God actually wrote the New Testament in Greek... He did not use the fancy kind of King James version of Greek that the authors, the literary Greek uh, that was used by Homer and Plato and Aristotle was called Attic Greek, And, and that was not the form of Greek that God wrote the New Testament in. Instead, God wrote the New Testament in what is called Koine Greek. Now, Koine Greek is a form of Greek. It's the language of the streets. It's the language of the marketplace. It's the language of the living room. It was regular people Greek. And Martin Luther said that Jesus came to feed his sheep, not his giraffes, right? And God spoke in ordinary, everyday language because he wants to be known by ordinary, everyday people. That, that's why the Bible is a chocolate thing. Because that's so good. We can understand it. God wants to be known. And maybe that's why we hunger for it, because of the clarity of Scripture. But maybe it's more than that. Back to our text, 2 Timothy 3. It says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. Maybe that's why we love the Bible. Maybe we love it for its trustworthiness. For its trustworthiness. It's from God. It can be trusted. Now, uh, at the church that we're a part of back in Joplin, when I'm not traveling around and preaching, um, I'm, I'm a children's church teacher. So most Sundays uh, you'll find me in the basement of our church with, I don't know, 20-some uh, elementary school kids just just teaching children's church. And this was a few years ago. Um, I, was, I was telling the kids the story of King Solomon. You remember the story, the two ladies that came before King Solomon and they've got a baby and they're arguing over whose baby it is. And King Solomon says, Bring me a sword, cut the baby in two, and give each woman half. And I'm telling the kids this story because you know that's a great story to tell, kids. And, <laughs> and right there in the middle of this story, Zach, five years old, is sitting on the front row. And Zach raises his hand. Yes, Zach. And he says. he says, Mr. Matt, I would not want the butt half. <laughs> 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 I said, Well, Zach, I hadn't actually thought about it, but. I'm probably the same way, buddy. (laughs) And what Zach was really telling me was this. He believed the story. In his mind, he was right there standing in the royal court next to those two ladies. And that Bible story was the realest thing that he had ever heard Not A doubt in his head. Never questioned the historicity of that story. The only question in his mind was which half of the baby to choose. And when you read through the Gospels, when you listen to Jesus teach... You can hear it. Jesus had that same kind of faith in Scripture. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus believed all of those Old Testament stories because in his teaching, he mentions, without blinking an eye... Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac, Jacob, Manna in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as the lawgiver, David, Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah, Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Zechariah, and Jonah, and Jesus never once questioned a single word. Never once questioned a single miracle. Never once questions a single historical claim on the pages of Scripture because Jesus knew better than anybody, all Scripture is God-breathed. He knew better than anyone that there is no other book on the planet like this. You understand that every other book that you've ever read has originated within our sphere of existence. This is the only book that actually comes to us from outside our sphere of existence. Yes, yes, it was written by men, uh, human beings, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit because these words actually came to us from the very throne room of heaven. I mean, you can can still catch the scent of God's breath on its pages. And... Because this comes to us from the perfect mind of God, the God who knows all and in whom there is no falsehood. He never lies. This book is never wrong. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35 The scriptures cannot be broken. This book is inviolable. It is inerrant, infallible, unbreakable. And this book, this book has the delegated authority of God Himself. So its teaching is trustworthy on how to handle anger and and on how to forgive people and on what kind of language that we ought to use. And it's teaching on human sexuality and the sanctity of human life and the nature of marriage and the reality of heaven and hell. And listen, when the teaching of this book comes up against the teaching of our world, when it comes up against what maybe even our own heart and emotions and experiences might try to tell us, hear me, always let the text win. Because this book can be trusted. This is a rock that we can stand on. And maybe, maybe that's why we love it so much. Because it's trustworthy. It's it's good to have something to trust in. That's a chocolate thing. And maybe that's why we hunger for God's word. But maybe, maybe there's another reason. Maybe we love the Bible for its helpfulness for its helpfulness. I mean, yes, it's clear. We like that. Yes, it's trustworthy. We like that. But, but is it actually useful? Is it beneficial? Is it a net positive in my life? Yes, it is, says Paul. In our text there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says that all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, notice those four verbs. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, teaching, that's telling you what's right. Rebuking, that's telling you what's not right. Correcting, that's telling you how to get right. Training, that's telling you how to stay right. You want to live right? You want to live the life you've always wanted? You want to live the very best life you can. Feed yourself on God's Word. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life isn't falling apart. And maybe that's why we hunger for the Bible. Because, listen, if you read the Bible regularly over time, it it will transform you. Now, reading the Bible is not like drinking caffeine. Sorry you didn't get your coffee. But it's not that instant jolt that will just get you through the next few hours. Instead, reading the Bible is kind of like taking vitamins. It's like eating lean beef and chicken and fruit and vegetables. It's taking in the nourishment that will slowly strengthen you with greater health over the long haul. And as God's word gets into your marrow and into your bloodstream, it then begins to metabolize into things like goodness and joy and courage and patience and wisdom in your life that you've never had before. And when you pick up a Bible, you are not just picking up 12 ounces of uh, of paper and printer's ink and glue. You are picking up the possibility of a whole new you, a whole new life. Um... When, uh, when my wife Katie and I were dating. This was when we were um, back students in Bible college. Uh, when we were dating, we decided to memorize Scripture together as kind of a help in keeping us holy during this whole dating process, you know. And so we decided when we first started dating to memorize the New Testament book of Colossians together. Colossians is one of the shorter books, just four chapters long. And so we started dating um, in the at the beginning of, of, of 1990. And so beginning of that of that uh, semester. Um, all week long, uh, we were each memorizing the first chapter of Colossians 1. All week long over in my dorm, uh, all week long over in her dorm, we're memorizing first paragraph of Colossians 1, and then Friday night was our date night. And so before uh, I took Katie out to McDonald's, uh, we would say our, um, our verses to each other. And then the next week, we took the second paragraph of that chapter and so on. And by the end of the semester, we had done it. We memorized the whole book of Colossians. We quoted all four chapters to each other. Now, you know how some couples have their song. You know what I'm talking about? And when their song comes on the radio, when their song comes up on a Spotify playlist, you know, what do they do? They, they, they're flooded with warm emotions. They kind of look at each other all googly-eyed. They're like, oh, that's, that's our song. I love you, and it's just sick. It's gross. It's not right. And (laughs) I'm telling you that Colossians was our book, right? We're in Bible college. We're sitting there in class together. Katie and I, professors up at the front. All of a sudden, professor lecturing away. Quotes from Colossians. Warm emotions flood my body. Look over at Katie all googly-eyed. Oh, Oh, that's our book. I love you. Bible college romance is weird. It's just weird, (laughs) all right? But Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this: Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Richly, You know the purpose for memorizing Scripture? It's to have it handy for the Holy Spirit when he needs it. Can I tell you what happened in my life after I memorized Colossians? I would be in class. I'd be tempted to lie to a professor about an assignment that I actually hadn't really completed. But in that moment of temptation, the Holy Spirit would flash up onto the screen of my mind. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And I'd tell the truth. Or I'd be in a moment of frustration with Katie and I would be tempted to say something that wasn't very nice. And all of a sudden, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19 would flash up onto the screen of my mind. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. And I'd, I'd bite my tongue. Or I'd be in a conversation with a non-Christian, and I would see all of a sudden in the conversation this gospel opening, this moment to put in a good word for Jesus. But I was hesitant, I was a little afraid, maybe I wasn't going to say something, but all of a sudden, Holy Spirit, boom, screen in my mind. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Ah, and I would try to put in a good word for the Lord. And God wants to sculpt all of us into the image of Christ, and God took his words there in Colossians. And just like a hammer and chisel, he began to knock off parts of my life that didn't look like him, and I've got a long ways to go. But when I see little bits of progress that God has made in my life, I rejoice, I am grateful for that. God's word is good in my life, and I understand why my friend Joe Puentes said this. One time he told me that in his Hispanic church, they have a saying La Biblia ha sido muy buena con nosotros. Which means the Bible has been very good to us. See, the Bible is a chocolate thing because it is so helpful in shaping us into who we really want to be. Maybe that's why we love God's word, why we hunger for it, because of its helplessness, but helpfulness, but listen. It's, it's just time for me to bring this message home. It's time for me to just lay all my cards out here on the table. Let me let me just tell you straight up why we love the Word of God. We hunger for it like our favorite food because it's about our favorite person. We love the Bible for its hero. <laughs> now, this was a few years ago um, Katie and I were cleaning out the attic, and we pulled down out of the attic this big box of college memorabilia, college keepsakes. And we're rummaging through this box. What do we want to keep? What do we want to throw away? And as I reach in this box, I pull out this great big thick manila envelope. What in the world was in here? And I reach into that envelope, and I pulled out this great big thick stack of love letters. Um, one summer, uh, while Katie and I were dating, one summer we were apart the whole summer. And so all summer long, Katie had been f- so faithful, she would write to me like two or three letters a week. And uh, and as soon as I pulled those letters out of that envelope, I mean, all of those memories instantly came flooding back. I could remember running to the mailbox and, and, and you know, grabbing that, that envelope and tearing it open and just devouring every sentence, reading and rereading every line, you know, kind of imagining the voice of my beloved behind those words. I mean, on the page it would say, dear. Matt, but I knew what she was thinking, my handsome hunk of a guy. and I, I could just hear her, her thoughts and her, her voice. And, and listen, those letters were my lifeline to her. And I, I did not set out to memorize those letters, but back then I could have just about quoted them because I had lingered over them so long. By the way, as we're sorting through that uh, box of, of keepsakes, Katie reaches in and she pulls out this uh, manila envelope and, and she reaches in and she pulls out both of the letters that I had written to her that summer because I'm a (laughs) slob. And and why? Why did I read those letters so hungrily? Well, because they were from someone I loved, someone that I knew loved me. I wanted to know her. I wanted to know everything about her. I loved those letters because I loved Katie. Hear me, church. This book is a letter to you from the lover of your soul. And this book, it's from Jesus and it's all about Jesus. In our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, these are the scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's the hero of the story. This is the Jesus book. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. The whole purpose of the written word is to show us the living word. The Bible was given to reveal Christ. And we love the Bible because we love him. We hunger for God's word because we hunger for God's Son. So could I close this morning by telling you about the best sermon I never heard? If I could time travel just once, if I could, if I could go back to any moment in history, I would go back to Luke 24. Now, maybe you remember the story. It's the very first Easter Sunday. Jesus has risen from the grave, but it's now the end of the day. The sun is sinking in the west, and the resurrected Jesus is actually walking along the road with two travelers. They're on the road to Emmaus, and he's speaking with these two travelers. They have read their Bibles, but they have never really understood their Bibles, so Jesus is teaching them, and in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says this. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Let me stop right there. That's an old Hebrew way of saying that he started in Genesis and went all the way to Malachi. Only Bible they had back then was the Old Testament. He started beginning went to the end. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. It says, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wow. Can you imagine that little church service right there on that road? Who's a preacher today? Jesus. What's his text? The whole Bible. What's his topic? Himself. Had to be the best sermon ever preached. I wish I could have been there. And even though I was not there, even though it's the best sermon I never heard, I'm guessing that Jesus could have said something like this. In the book of Genesis, I am there. The word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In the book of Exodus, I am there. The Passover lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the door to save you from death. In Leviticus, I am there, your great high priest. In Numbers, I am there, your ever-present guide, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I am the one lifted high in the wilderness, saving all who look on me from the serpent's poison. In Deuteronomy, I am there the coming prophet greater than Moses. I, I am the city of refuge to which the guilty may run. In the book of Joshua, I am there. I am the commander of the angel armies. I am the captain of the Lord's hosts. In Judges, I am Ehud's dagger. I am Shamgar's ox goad. I am Samson's jawbone, Gideon's sword. I am Israel's true deliverer from all her enemies. In Ruth, I am the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, I am the coming son of David. In 1st and 2nd Kings, I am the one greater than the King of Solomon. In first in and second chronicles, I am the Shekinah glory of God filling that temple. In Ezra and Nehemiah, I am the rebuilder of all things broken. And in Esther, I am the unseen protector of my people. In Job, I am the redeemer who lives, the only true comfort in times of trouble. In Psalms. I'm the good shepherd who makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside quiet waters. In Proverbs, I am the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, I am the end of the matter, the true meaning of life. In Song of Solomon, and yes, I am in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, I am the Rose of Sharon, the fairest of 10,000, the glorious bridegroom, coming to take his bride home. In Isaiah, I... I am the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and I am the suffering servant, pierced for your iniquities, crushed for your transgressions. By my wounds you are healed. In Jeremiah, I am that potter molding patiently the stubborn clay. In Lamentations, in the midst of your tears, I am the one who gives you mercies new every morning. In Ezekiel, I am that wind blowing from the four corners of the earth into the valley of the dry bones, resurrecting them to new life. In Daniel, in Daniel, I am that fourth man in the furnace. That was me. And by the way, it wasn't Daniel in the lion's den. It was the lions in my den. I was there. In Hosea, when my wayward wife breaks my heart again and again, I am the faithful husband who welcomes her home. In Joel, I am the one who restores the years that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, I restore the exiles. In Obadiah, I am the judge. In Jonah, I am the true missionary pursuing the nations. In Micah, I am that ruler born in little Bethlehem. In Nahum. I am your avenger in Habakkuk, your strength in Zephaniah, your mighty warrior in Haggai. I am the desire of all nations in Zechariah. I am the cleansing fountain and in Malachi. I am the son of righteousness, risen with healing in my wings before Abraham was. I am. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And if Jesus were to step off of that road to Emmaus and to step onto this stage this morning, he could say this. In Matthew, I am the prophesied king. In Mark, I am that powerful servant who heals the sick, feeds the hungry, conquers the demons, raises the dead. In Luke, I am the son of man, full of compassion, who eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and prodigals. In John, I am the word made flesh, the vine, the bread of life. I am the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. In Acts, In Acts, I am the one who meets Saul there on the road to Damascus. I'm the one that turned the church's greatest persecutor into the church's greatest preacher. In Romans, I am your justification. In 1 Corinthians, I am your sanctification. 2 Corinthians, I am your reconciliation. In Galatians, I am your liberation. And in Ephesians, I am your unification. In Philippians, I am the one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In Colossians, I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things I might have the supremacy. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, I am the coming king. In 1st Timothy, I am the one mediator between God and man. In 2nd Timothy, I am the one who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Titus, I am the God who does not lie. In Philemon, I'm the one who takes slaves and masters and turns them into brothers. In Hebrews, I am the author and perfecter of our faith, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James, my dear, my dear hard-headed brother James, I am the glorious power that transforms faith into deeds. In 1 Peter, I am the chief shepherd. In 2 Peter, I am the patient Lord who wants no one to perish. In First and Second and Third John, I am the word of life. In Jude, I am the one who is able to keep you from falling. And in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the root of David. I am the faithful witness, the bright and morning star. I am the... Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world, I am Revelation's righteous warrior. Returning on a white war horse, my eyes like blazing fire. My head are many crowns dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Out of my mouth comes a sharp sword. And on my robe and on my thigh, I have this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. On every page of history and on every page of this book, I am Hear me, church, this book is all about Him. These are the scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we hunger for the Bible because we hunger for Him. So, my encouragement to you today is very simply this keep opening these pages, keep reading these pages, keep studying these pages, keep eating these pages. Because in them you will meet Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good.